this year, the Christian president of Nigeria, good luck Jonathan, was re-elected. The supporters of the defeated uh, Muslim candidate, Buhari, uh, went on the rampage, taking out their anger on Christian communities, mainly in the north of Nigeria. And at least 194 churches were burnt or destroyed since that result in May. Over 1,200 houses have been sort of raised to the ground. And at least 800 people are estimated to have been killed in those riots. Just to personalize this, uh, on the 4th of May, Muslim extremists in, uh, I don't know how to say these places, Bauchi State, Bauchi State, they murdered three children and the wife of the Christian pastor there, James Reich, who was the minister of the Church of Christ in Karum. That was, that was just last month. Now, how do you cope with such loss? Why would you be a Christian in northern Nigeria when, when you face uh, such horrific things? And I want to suggest to you the answer is this. By knowing the destiny of history. By knowing the destiny of history. And that's what we're going to look at today. Um, today, really, I want you, each person here, individually to think about what your destiny will be according to the Bible. Really, knowing our destiny is, is something that changes everything. And so please open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. You'll find it on page 958. And as you look it up, and if you're visiting today, then just uh, to explain that what we do at Charlotte Chapel here is we just work through books of the Bible. We just try week after week to just to explain and teach what is there in the Bible. And we've been working through this Old Testament book uh, of Zechariah. Zechariah lived and ministered about 500 years before the coming of uh, the birth of Jesus Christ. And these last three chapters of Zechariah, the prophet is declaring a word from God about the end of history. Last week we looked at chapters 12 and 13 and we saw that in the coming, in the birth of Jesus Christ... And his life and the events of his death and, and resurrection, it marked the beginning of the end of history. So in biblical thought, uh, we've been living in the last days of planet Earth since the first coming of Christ 2,000 years ago. And when we get to chapter 14, he describes the end of the end. So let's just take time to read it. The day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, 
His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there will be no light, no cold or frost. It'll be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea in the summer and in the winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord, and his name the only name. The whole land from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place, from the Benjamin Gate to the site of the First Gate, to the Corner Gate, and from the Tower of Hanel to the Royal Wine Press. It will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they're still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that, great, on that day, men will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. Each man will seize the hand of another and they will attack each other. Judah too will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and mules, the camels and donkeys, and all the animals in those camps. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem And Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. This is God's words. Well, if you're new to Christian things, if this is a new experience for you today, I want you to know that Uh, As Christians, we find this a perplexing and difficult chapter. Just want you to know that. But we're just committed to working through books of the Bible just to see what it has to say. If we just picked our own topics, I don't think I'd ever pick this in a million years. Right? It is a perplexing chapter. Martin Luther, the the great German theologian of the 16th, uh, 16th century Reformation... He wrote in his commentary on this chapter, Here in this chapter, I give up. 
for I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. There have been different interpretations on this chapter. And I think part of the challenge is that Zechariah is stretching words to their limit. He is attempting to describe the indescribable. I mean, newspapers struggle to capture some of the tragedies that we see in the world. And they use phrases like this, that, that, they wit- that, they, that the, the reporter witnessed apocalyptic scenes of destruction. Sometimes people talk about disasters of biblical proportion. Well, my friends, today we're looking at a chapter that is uh, uh, apocalyptic material where Zechariah is using a mix of poetic language and biblical imagery drawn from Israel's past and to describe the end of all things. And when we're dealing with such awesome things, we are struggling to really use language to describe what's going on. Repeatedly through these final chapters, as we saw last week, he speaks of a day of the Lord with this phrase, on that day, on that day. And so while I don't pretend to understand every detail in this chapter, and uh, if I was giving a lecture, I would explore all the options with you, but I'm I'm not here to give a lecture, I'm here to preach God's word. So I'm not telling you that I understand everything here, but I think there's three things that we can clearly see from this chapter. I wonder what is it do we expect life to be like in between the first coming of Christ and the return of Christ? Well, my first point this morning is that God's people will be attacked. God's people will be attacked. And we get that in the first two verses. Um, If you can move the slide on. This sobering picture in verses 1 and 2. The pictures of, of the nations of the earth gathering to fight against Jerusalem. And the attack will be brutal. The city will be captured, that their wealth and possessions looted, the women terrorized and abused, and half the city scattered in exile. And it is a picture of the total defeat of Jerusalem. It is a picture of the total victory by the nations. This attack by the nations is more than just a political statement. The scriptures describe Jerusalem as uh, God's city, the city of God. It was the place where his temple was, which, which symbolized God's presence amongst his people. And so as the, as the nations gather to attack Jerusalem, really, it is a spiritual statement of opposition against God. This is the nations that are gathered against God, opposing God, attacking the city of God. And this passage might well refer to an actual battle that will specifically happen around Jerusalem. Some see that, uh, and specifically against the Jewish people. Now, it may well do that, but I believe that it speaks of a more general opposition against God's people. What will life be like in between the the first coming and the second coming of Christ? Well, it will be characterized by opposition and attack wherever God's people gather. That's what Zechariah is prophesying here. All over the world, there will be times of brutal opposition for the Christian church. And the experience of many Christians will be one of suffering and persecution. We find this hard because we've enjoyed, now in Scotland, a fairly unique time over a few hundred years of of peace and acceptance. 
but you can go up to the uh, National Museum uh, and you will see that that was not always the case uh, in this very nation. Uh, you can go to, well, you can go to the Great Fires Church graveyard, can't you? And you can see where ministers were locked up. You can see uh, what happens uh, when people who really believed the Bible and taught it, actually they ended up being burnt at the stake in this very nation. Go to St. Andrews. You can go and see the very spot where George Wishart was killed. Uh, there was a time when to turn up to a prayer meeting, you had to do it uh, out in the countryside. People went with swords. They were always fearful of being under attack by troops. Th- these things happened in this nation. And this has been the experience of many in recent decades throughout the world. When the Taliban were in charge of Afghanistan, the average life expectancy of an Afghan person who publicly converted to being a Christian was two weeks. I see we're in negotiations again with the Taliban. But when they were were in charge, if you became a Christian as an Afghan, you basically had about two weeks to live if you made that public. All Nations College in Ware and uh, Regents College in Vancouver calculated in a study uh, the number of people who died a violent death for being a Christian in the year 2004. Uh, how many people do you think died in 2004 for you know, basically being a Christian martyr, died violently because they were Christians? Well, according to their studies, 167,000. 167,000 people died that year. And what Zechariah tells us is that this experience of suffering is to be expected in these end times, in this in-between time. God's people will be attacked. And, and this verse 2 is just one of those tough verses in the Bible. But for some mysterious reason, God allows those in rebellious opposition to attack his people. Becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, means that, that people who reject Jesus as Savior and Lord will oppose and reject us. To become a Christian does not put us in some protective bubble where we will not suffer. It doesn't guarantee that we'll not experience pain or suffering or torture or death. And Jesus was crystal clear about this, wasn't he? In, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, he called out to the crowd, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, we sometimes think in the West, that's a metaphor of giving up chocolate or who, who knows, whatever. No, the, taking up your cross was saying, I'm, I'm willing to know that I'm going to head to an early death pick up this instrument of torture that was a means that killed so many people pick it up and follow me Christians and missionaries have been attacked beaten raped killed this has happened and it is happening in the world today Now, if you're not a Christian, um, I I hope this is kind of shocking news to you. But let me ask you the question. Why do you think this sort of stuff happens? I mean, Christians might be a little bit odd. But you don't fear for your life with Christians, do you? Why, Why this brutal treatment? 
Why do we live in a world where there is so much war and suffering, where dictators, even in this last week, we've heard horrible stories of how dictators have tried to terrorize and brutalize their own people. Why is that? Why is the world like that? Well, the answer to the Bible is, 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 is because this is a world that's in rebellion against God. This is a world that is in opposition to having God rule over us. And this is what happens in such a world. And chapter 14 of Zechariah seems to suggest, to, to me anyway, that, that this opposition, this tribulation, will actually grow and intensify in the last days. And so a question you might be thinking right now is, is something like this. Well, why would anyone want to become a Christian? Why? Why? Particularly in some of these nations that are experiencing so much suffering, why would you ever become a Christian? If you know that uh, as an Afghan, that maybe it would just two more weeks of life, why would you ever become a Christian? Why would you be a follower of Jesus in, in that sort of hardship? And the answer is this, because Christians know the end of the story. The Bible tells us what will happen at the end. Just when everything looks at its as bleak as it can be, just when the, the darkest hour is upon us, when it looks like all is lost, there's going to be a great reversal. And the second point this morning is this. God will come. That's what this chapter promises. God will come. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. God will come as a warrior. And it will be a day of salvation and judgment. Salvation for God's people, judgment for the nations who attacked and opposed. Now we know this from human experience, don't we? That sometimes the only way that people can be saved and delivered is when those who are attacking them are taken out. We saw that for the people of Benghazi. Um, it was felt that, they, that a massacre was about to happen in Libya, in the city of Benghazi. And so jet fighters were deployed uh, to attack tanks and military units and to, to, to secure that city. Now, great news for the people of Benghazi. Deadly news for the people sitting in the tanks. And sometimes the only way that you can win is by getting feet on the ground, the military commanders say. And this is what will happen. God will come. Verse 4, on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And in the Bible, whenever God comes in a dramatic way into history, it's, it's like creation melts and cracks before him. And that's what you see happening in verse 4. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. And, and so an escape route is made, uh, a deliverance route for those suffering as they get away. And, and, and this escape route is kind of like a Dunkirk moment, it would seem. Uh, of escape, and yet there's a gathering together of the people of God and God's angelic army who return to reclaim Jerusalem, having conquered all opposition. That's what's there in verse 5. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. So, you see what the picture here before that day it looks hopeless, doesn't it? God's people look pitiful, broken defeated how foolish they are for trusting God what a waste what a joke 
The winners are, are those who think nothing of God. The winners are those who have no fear of God. But on that day, there's a dramatic reversal, isn't it? Everything is switched around. Everything is decisively changed in that one moment where God steps in decisively into human history. Suddenly, the defeated experience deliverance and then victory. Suddenly, uh, it'll be those who are the attackers who are suddenly the ones under attack and the ones who are being conquered on that day when God comes. And the description in verses 12 to 15 is, is a fearful one. And it's almost as if Zechariah has gone back into his Bible and taken all the different descriptions of the way that God had stepped in and judged in the past and it kind of rolls them all together to describe this final day of judgment. It, it's, it, it, it reads like a script from a sort of a horror movie of plagues and rotting and people turning against one another. And it's a fearful description, isn't it? A fearful description struck down by the Lord in plague. So why identify with a suffering Christ now? Why be willing to suffer for his name? Because there is a day coming when the same Christ will return. He'll not come in weakness. He will come again in glory and in power as the conquering king. That's what the Bible says. It was on the Mount of Olives that the disciples had their last conversation with the resurrected Jesus. And they saw him taken up, it says, as they're standing on the Mount of Olives, taken up uh, and disappear from their sight in the cloud. And as they continued looking up into the sky, it says in Acts chapter 1, um, some men dressed in white stand by them and they say, well, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. God will come. The feet of Jesus will touch down again on the Mount of Olives, bringing the day of deliverance for God's people. You know, Jesus followed up his call to the crowds, this call of deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. He followed it with these words. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul on that day? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And as it stands right now, today, what is your destiny? What's your destiny? The answer hangs to your response to Jesus Christ. See, uh, are you with those who call, uh, who would call out, Come, Lord Jesus. For you know that that, that, that will be a day of salvation and a day of transformation. Or, or 
really is Jesus just a bit of a joke? An irrelevance of no significance to you. Well, listen to God's word today. God will come in the return of Jesus Christ. And on that day, our destiny will be sealed. And thirdly, this passage teaches that God will reign. See, that day of victory uh, will not end. This is not just another battle where the gains will be lost. No, this will be a victory that will not end. It is the end of the end, uh, but it's the start of a brand new, unique day as it's described in verse 6 and 7. Without daytime or nighttime, no light, no cold, no frost. And yet there is light, it says in verse 7. When evening comes, there will be light. Again, we're struggling to use language as if the sun and the stars have disappeared and yet there is still permanent light on this unique day in history. It's a new era. Don't you love this time of the year in Edinburgh? I love it. The light is fantastic, isn't it? That's what makes the winter so miserable. It gets dark so early. But this time of the year, well, I mean, you could go hill walking at midnight almost. Nearly, nearly, nearly. There's so much light. I love it. On that day, all will be light. I I flew down to Southampton yesterday. Got out of the plane. The sun was shining. It was warm. I suddenly thought, this is why people live here. <laughs> Came back to Edinburgh. Shona said, miserable all day. That's why we have so many great writers in, in, in Edinburgh, isn't it? All indoors, thinking deep thoughts. <laughs> but there's a day coming when all will be light. We heard it from Revelation 22. There will be no more nights. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. A unique day of light, and, and, and there will be life, perpetual living water, verse 8. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. And the God of glory and of all blessing will rule and reign over the whole world. Verse 9, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name the only name. All will confess God. All will be worshippers of the true and living God. A a, a profound unity. And, And also revealed in this chapter is this amazing statement in verse 16. This is what makes me think that uh, this imagery of Jerusalem is not just about Jewish people. Because on that day, uh, the survivors from the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Amongst this great worshipping crowd, you know, after this horrific description of judgment, you think, well, no one will be left. And yet there are survivors who are left, and they will join as worshippers of the living God and will proclaim joyfully, the Lord is uh, the one true God. I don't know whether the idea of worship sounds dull to you, but this worship's about celebration. 
they go to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles uh, was a week-long celebration. God commands, you must celebrate, you must be joyful. Uh, A week of feasting. It it, it marked the end of the wilderness wanderings. It marked the time they'd come home. It was at the time of the year when the harvest was brought in. Uh, the harvest of wheat and the harvest of grapes, and it was a week-long celebration of joy. Jesus spoke of not drinking wine again until the time when he drank the wine of the kingdom. I don't know, I think that's kind of exciting. Worship, dull? I don't think so. A week-long of feasting, celebration, joy? Sounds pretty good to me. The journey has finally come to an end. God's people are home, gathered again. What an amazing picture. I don't know uh, whether you've had this experience, but um, maybe reveal more about my psychology than yours, but I just sometimes have moments uh, on our vacation or on a day off or something, and, and, and you come towards the end of the day and you just think, this has been perfect day you have a day like that let's be honest it doesn't happen every day does it not for me anyway but you have a day and you think oh this this was a perfect day it it had everything that I love you know all was well with the world there was joy there was laughter there was sunshine there was friends there was food you were conscious that all your relationships were in good shape you know happy all around you enjoyed all the blessings of God's world and you think oh wouldn't it be great if it was like this all the time and yet those moments can just change like that can't they they can just disappear in a moment overnight you wake up the next day and it's all gone oh it's a miserable day well Zechariah's holding out a vision of a day that is coming when that perfect day will never end when God is king there will be nothing that will spoil this perfect endless day of worship of God of feasting and joy and celebration surrounded by brothers and sisters from every nation of the world because it says in the final uh, two verses that, that all will be holiness there will be no sin that spoils No sin that rots, that molds, that perishes or corrupts. There'll be no selfishness, no fighting, no pain. All that sin will be gone. All will be holiness. Verse 20 and 21, it's as if the holy temple area has spread through the whole land. We will all be living in God's house, the temple. Do you remember how big this theme has been in the book of Zechariah? As Zechariah prophesied to get them to build this sort of new temple. But he kept telling them, by the way, this temple, this is not the real temple. The Messiah is coming and he's going to bring the real temple. And this is the real temple. Well, the whole land is, is holy because we're all dwelling in God's house. No longer can we be hurt by any others because of selfishness and sin. It's all gone. It used to be that the high priest used to have this uh, thing on his hat, his turban, holy to the Lord. But on that day, um, it'll be written even on the, on the bells that are on horses because everything will be holiness. So back to my main point. 
knowing our destiny changes everything. Now, if what the Bible says is true here, that God will come, that God will reign, and all enemies of Christ will be, um, who reject the gospel will face judgment, and you're here today as somebody who is indifferent to the Lord Jesus, who is someone who um, really has no interest in God, then the horror of this judgment will be your destiny. I, 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 I take no delight in saying this. I think of my own relatives who still don't love Christ and love his gospel, and, and, it, and I, it makes me weep to think that they still stand outside of this and they still face this, this destiny because they're, they're, they're rejecting Christ. And, and if this is the case for you, it is not the vital question, this question right now. Can this be changed? Can I change my destiny? And, and that's, that's why I'm so glad you're here today because I want to say, well, yes. Yes, we can change. Uh, that is the very reason for why Jesus Christ came the first time. He came 2,000 years ago to make it possible for enemies to become friends of God. He, he lived that perfect life that we could not live. And he went to the cross and died to take the punishment that our sins deserve. The horror of the judgment that is described here is what he willingly took upon himself in the place of sinners. How do you become one of those survivors from the nations? You cling to the cross of Christ. You, you, you turn away from your sin. You trust Christ. And, and you say, that salvation, I want it, Lord. I lay hold of you. That's where you become a survivor. That's where that judgment day will have no fear for you, for he will have taken it for you. You'll be covered under the cross. He gives us amnesty. He welcomes us into his family. And my friends, this changes everything. We, know, we can know today. You could know today that you'll be saved from that terrible judgment on that final day just by coming to Christ. Back to that pastor, James Reich, in Nigeria. Uh, he heard that his 13-year-old daughter was told by the Muslim militants that they would kill her and, quote, to see how your Jesus will save you. She responded by telling them that Jesus already had saved her and that by killing her they would only be making it possible for her to be with him knowing our destiny on that final day as Christians changes everything doesn't it if we know that on that final day as it says in verse 14 we will inherit the wealth of the nations well, then we can cope with our possessions being plundered and our houses being burnt and our churches being bombed. Now, one day we'll inherit the wealth of the nations. If we know that there's going to be a great day of reunion 
with those that we love. Wife, children, brothers and sisters. We know that there'll be a day where there will be endless celebration. A feast of joy together in total security in the Father's house. Then we can bear losing those that we love now. Because we know our destiny. If we know that we will live one day in face-to-face, in the face-to-face presence of King Jesus, in his kingdom of light and life, then we can face living in darkness and even losing our life for Christ now. Knowing our destiny changes everything. It enables God's people to say, Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are so humbled as we come to your word and see these sober truths. We thank you that you've made yourself known. Oh, we thank you for your great love that sent your one and only Son that we can be saved, that we can become not only friends, but your very family. Father, we pray for those who grieve today. Pray for Pastor James and his remaining children and the church that he pastors and others like him. Comfort and strengthen them today with the certain hope that your kingdom will come. Father, put in us faith and hope that will spur real courage to live for you, to live for Christ and his gospel. We ask that in his precious name. Amen.